You're listening to On Human Rights, where we bring interviews from experts around the world on the latest and most interesting trends and information on human rights and international humanitarian law. Today, RWI's Dr. Matthew Scott, who is the head of People on the Move, is speaking to Sabira Coelho, who is the program manager for International Organization for Migration in Fiji. Previously, Sabira served as the Regional Migration Environment and Climate Change Officer at the IOM Regional Office for Asia and the Pacific, providing technical support to IOM missions. This episode explores the topic of the right of people that are and can potentially be displaced in the context of climate in the Pacific region. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Here we are in uh, Fiji, having just had a consultation on the work that Raoul Wallenberg Institute has been doing on displacement in the context of disasters and climate change, where we discussed the phenomenon uh, and the role of law and policy in dealing with displacement in Vanuatu and the Solomon Islands. Uh, I'm really happy uh, that IOM has hosted this meeting uh, in the context of the Pacific Regional Cooperation setup that, uh, that you have. And now we're having the opportunity to talk with Sabira Coelho from IOM uh, about the work that IOM is doing and the perspective that uh, you have uh, having been working on this issue both in the Pacific and uh, in other part in, in Asia. So if I can start by asking a general question, what's IOM doing on this issue in the Pacific? Thank you, Matt. I think I, I would also maybe just like to start by saying thanks to you guys at the Raoul Wallenberg Institute for coming all the way to Suva and actually sharing your findings. Uh, it's really important to have researchers come back to the places where they conducted the study and disseminate their ideas. So I think that everyone really appreciated that today and I was very happy also just to get a refresher of some of the presentations that I've heard before just reflecting on that before going into what IOM's doing. I mean, it's it was a really interesting conversation, I felt, that really focused in on the need for, of course, of course, coordination. I mean, we're talking about policies, but when you are looking at implementation, it needs to be the sort of whole-of-society approach and something that is, of course, coordinated. And I think that that's a lesson that, for me, keeps coming uh, again and again, and maybe we can talk about that a bit more. But... In terms of your question on what is IOM doing in the region, that's a big question. IOM is um, based in eight countries in the Pacific and here in Fiji, we're a national office covering Fiji but managing regional programs. Specifically, IOM Fiji is currently engaged in developing a migration profile for the country, so it's actually working with a range of different ministries, pulling together information on what mig- you know, what is migration, what is the statistics and trends, and try to compile something that is sort of a coherent, cohesive document on migration in Fiji and what needs to sort of be done in terms of addressing it. I think my colleagues can probably tell you more about that later. The other programs that we have, one is on Pacific adaptation through labor migration, where we work in Kiribati, Tuvalu, and... Um, the Marshall Islands, and that's looking at actually supporting the development of a labor market information system in order to actually strengthen labor migration governance, Um, and that's something that should be finishing finishing up by the end of the year. 
And then we have uh, two big programs that are currently ongoing, one of which is being funded now by the EU, um, the European Union, and uh, is led by the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center. IOM is an implementing agency along with the platform on disaster displacement. And that's actually focusing on sort of understanding uh, displacement risk um, as well as addressing displacement risk. That's a project that's managed by my colleagues. So again, you, there are different people for different things and you can probably catch them uh, while you're here. But uh, that one focuses on the countries of Solomon Islands, Tonga, Marshall Islands, Vanuatu, and uh, Fiji. And it's looking at basically collecting better data on displacement, but then also trying to understand where displacement risk lies and strengthening uh, support for both uh, the national disaster management organizations, but other ministries and governments in order to strengthen their capacity to address this. And then it also focuses on the policy side, which brings me to the last regional program, which is what I am managing. It's got a very long title, which uh, <laughs> I think will take you quite long in the course of this podcast to actually have that. But for short, it's called the Pacific Climate Change, Migration and Human Security Program. And this is essentially a policy-oriented program, so to speak. It's funded by the UN Trust Fund for Human Security. IOM is the lead agency. And along with IOM, we have the agencies of the UN Economic uh, and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific, the International Labour Organization, the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights, Pacific Islands Forum Secretary, as well as the Platform Disaster Displacement. So six partners in five countries. We're working in Fiji, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Marshall Islands, and Vanuatu. So now what exactly is this specific program doing? We're actually trying to do three main things. So we have three objective areas. The first is looking at actually facilitating a Pacific approach or a Pacific response to addressing uh, climate change-related migration, displacement, plan relocation through a human security response. And that might mean that through the course of consultations that we will have in the next three years, at the end of it, we will be we will have a consolidated sort of Pacific opinion in terms of how do they really need to address climate change related migration, displacement, plan relocation. And I keep using these three terms very consciously because these are the three terms that have been uh, used in the UNFCCC Cancun uh, Declaration. And so we define migration as being voluntary movements, displacement as forced, and uh, relocation as the transplantation of communities. And I will sometimes sort of use climate migration as a sort of a synthesis term for all, even though there's no consensus. So I think just one of the points maybe to mention is that displacement as a definition doesn't necessarily have a, a term, terminology. It's not a terminology that has a sort of consensus definition. I think that's one of the things that we also want to try and find out. The second point uh, under this uh, program is on labor migration and trying to understand how we can strengthen the labor migration governance system to make sure that it contributes both to sustainable development but also climate change adaptation. And that's through working with governments to better understand their rights and responsibilities, the working with migrant workers themselves to also understand their responsibilities and through that sort of, that's a very simplified <laughs> explanation of it, but through that entire process, we are able to ensure that labor migration contributes to 
sustainable development, climate change adaptation. And the last one is evidence and research, uh, where we also aim to sort of contribute to the evidence base on addressing climate migration and really bringing together case studies and bits and pieces. And this is why I was really happy to have the presentations today and RWI come in and present your findings because this is a great way to sort of contribute to that evidence base that exists. So that's a big, <laughs> sorry for that long overview of what IOM is doing in from Fiji. It's, it's not a complete coverage of what we're doing in the region because there's a lot more to talk about. But I hope that's enough. It's a huge area, the Pacific region. And the different kind of engagements that you described shows that one way of working is by connecting with specific countries in the region. How do, how do you look at or what's your perception of working on the issue of the, the three issues you mentioned, displacement, migration and plant relocation, at the regional level? Is it possible in a place like the Pacific? And if so, how does that, how does that work? In asking that question about regional level engagement, I'm mindful of the existence of the, the FRDP, which is the Framework for Resilient Development in the Pacific, um, which mentions at multiple points the importance of different actors dealing with displacement. How do you see that regional level engagement with displacement? I think just, it's, it's, it's a really good question. I think one of the things that sort of struck me ever since I moved here to the region in March is that, you know, before sitting in, in Bangkok, which is sort of the hub of the Asia-Pacific region, displacement in the context of climate change and disasters or even migration, you know, voluntary movements, whether it's seasonal movements or, or even more permanent movements, because of sort of slow onset processes was almost a more cryptic kind of idea in in many of the other country contexts where, you know, because migration specifically is driven for many reasons and even displacement, there is um, more recognition that, uh, or data actually shows that disaster displacement is more significant than conflict-related displacement. But here in the Pacific, the main driver of displacement is disasters, much more than conflict. I mean, of course, if you're looking not at big countries such as PNG, which you know have different sort of types of displacement occurring as well, but co- disaster displacement is a big issue in the Pacific region. And there's also this strong recognition that of the impact of climate change and how that will potentially be driving, whether it's voluntary movements or even potential relocation of communities. So I think that that acknowledgement is very much, as you said, it's anchored in regional policy. And you don't, I think, across uh, the Asia-Pacific region, I mean, you don't have many other regions that actually acknowledge it to that extent and and the reason for that is that this is very much a reality here I mean I don't know if you or you'll have the chance to sort of go around but if, if you're traveling even down to the villages here in Fiji there are many villages that have their coastlines eroding because of sea level rise so when you speak to them of climate change maybe not in those exact terms this is a very real lived 
reality and this is a lived experience of the people so you will have people talking to you about it and because of that is something that becomes then very central in of course policy discussions so I think the sort of perception of displacement and migration plan relocation I mean there is that awareness that exists and that exists now also in national policies but also in regional policies um, the FRDP acknowledges, uh, as you said also, Matthew, I think there's several different paragraphs, whether it's calling upon the national governments or even regional organizations to actually integrate human mobility into national and regional strategies, but also asking to have increased protection of people that are displaced in the context of climate change. So that is something that has been acknowledged and exists. I said that lots of times, <laughs> but um, I think the, the 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 point now is that the region recognizes this as a challenge, but the question now arises: where do we specifically move from that point to now? So, the the FRDP. Um, actually has specific governance arrangements. So in 2017, the Pacific leaders actually approved the governance arrangements of the, of the FRDP, which is uh, one of which is the, the Pacific Resilience Partnership. And under this Pacific Resilience Partnership umbrella, there are actually technical working groups that are established. So one of the themes of the technical working groups that are established is on human mobility. And the reason for that is that at the first Pacific Resilience meeting that was held earlier this year in May, we had a panel discussion on the topic of displacement. We had lots of several excellent speakers from the government, uh, as well as representing um, the local Red Cross NGOs. And uh, I think one of the things that came out from that is that, you know, this is important. We've been talking about this. This is in the FRTP, but what do we really now need to do? And how do we need to cooperate and collaborate at a regional level. So from there, the TWG and Human Mobility was born. Uh, IOM is the chair of this TWG and GIZ is the co-chair. We have about 25 members and the idea for this is to really come up with um, some type of consensus terminology, awareness, understanding of what this issue is, uh, case studies and best practices in terms of how to address this but also a common and consolidated Pacific opinion on what needs to move forward. And this also links into the process that is going to be underway through the program that I'm managing, that I mentioned already, the PCCMHS uh, program. And uh, I think the intention and the aspiration here in the region is that there needs to also be something that needs to be done in terms of specific policies or guidance or guidelines to actually manage uh, these different types of trends. So that's sort of the direction in which we are moving. And that's, and yeah, I think that gives you also a sense or flavor of the ambition also that yeah. exists. Yeah, there is that regional level, like you said, acknowledgement of the phenomenon, a shared expression of concern, the lived experience of people who are displaced or at risk of displacement. And all of that somehow condenses into the need for concrete engagement, but the concrete engagement must then come in the national contexts. And this is where I suppose there's a role for, for IOM and other actors 
working with governments and, and others at the national level, what does it look like from your perspective if we move from regional level engagement to specific national contexts? For example, I know that IOM supported Vanuatu in the development of a national plan on climate and disaster-induced displacement. Could you tell us more about that? That's a, that's a really good question. I think that that's a really important link that sometimes isn't always unfortunately made. I think everything that happens at the regional level in, in order for it to really be operationalized and for it to actually make sense, you need to be having complementary national actions to actually implement some of those regional commitments. But it also works the other way around. I mean, the reason why you have, uh, in fact, when I was talking to some of the colleagues who were working on the drafting of the FRDP, what they were saying is that the FRDP actually came about because there was already in many of the countries integrated climate change uh, adaptation and disaster risk reduction policies. So because of that, then you would see across the Pacific region that there was a basis then to sort of go into what could be seen as then sort of you know, cross-border collaboration or multilateral collaboration. Therefore, the regional process came up. So I think that there is in this region sort of interaction between the levels, but the national level continues to be very important, both in terms of implementing what exists at the regional level, but then also informing what goes upwards. Mm-hmm. IOM has, I mean, we, we, as I said in, in the beginning, so we're present here in this region, uh, let me see if I get it right. I mean, we're based here in Fiji, Tonga, Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, uh, Federated States of Micronesia, Palau, Marshall Islands. And we do have programs in Kiribati and Tuvalu. So that's kind of our operational coverage. So we do definitely see the importance of being in the countries and working directly with national governments to actually support them, both in terms of this policy development, but then also strengthening their capacities to implement these, which is also a very important piece of the puzzle, I'd say. And then not only at the national level, but working with subnational actors and communities and community organizations too. Um, you gave the example of the Vanuatu uh, displacement guidelines. Uh, I think this was sort of a need that had been felt by the government for quite a long time. Vanuatu is repeatedly sort of ranked as the most disaster-prone or exposed country in the world. I think there's one of the, the risk indexes that actually ranks it at number one. Um, and it's because it's a country that is exposed to, of course, volcanic eruptions, uh, you know, geological hazards, earthquakes, tsunamis, but then also has climate change impacts such as uh, sea level rise and coastal erosion and you know, climate variability. So it has really the whole gamut of disasters and I mean, natural hazards and climate change uh, impacts that, you, that one can imagine. And as a result, there's also been a lot of displacement. So last week, for example, we were in Vanuatu, we were talking to the people about displacement and they were, you know, they were just, they, it, was, it was not a question. I think that this is sometimes in other countries you need to also explain what the issues are. And I think that it wasn't a question in many senses because it also comes after the development of the policy. So you can see that the policy has been helpful in terms of making people recognize that, you know, th- there are human impacts to disaster, you know, human impacts to disasters, not just 
you know, when a disaster strikes, it's not just destroying infrastructure and looking at it in economic terms, but also looking at it in terms of the number of people affected and their needs and the needs of the population and, you know, the fact that they're people displaced. So this was a reality that existed even before the development of the policy, and I think that the government recognized that this is something that needs to actually be put into text and there needs to be a clear sort of plan in terms of how do the different ministries engage with this and of course looking at it from the whole cycle of prevention uh, of displacement but then also projection during times of displacement and then durable solutions uh, and it also tries to look at not just sort of the sudden onset events, as I mentioned, but also slow onset events that sometimes it's kind of difficult to figure out where exactly, uh, you know, where does the where, what is the line between displacement and migration? So what is the threshold for, for forced movement? So it tries also to sort of do that, and it was based on, of course, consultation with a range of communities. And finally, I think the government published this in 2018, uh, going back to, what I mentioned that we were actually traveling there last week and we talked to a, a, a range of different ministries. And I think that there's <coughs> great appreciation for the fact that this policy exists and people recognize displacement and understand displacement. But also now I think there is a drive and a move to sort of seeing how we can implement this. So they're talking about the, the development of the standard operating procedures trying to understand how different ministries need to coordinate and what are their specific roles and responsibilities. Uh, another thing that I also see is that it's, it's quite a big overarching document that lists all of the possible sort of sectoral interventions as well as the different thematic interventions that need to be made. But we can't start at everything. So it's also about now figuring out which ones need to be prioritized. So it's a little early to see sort of measurable advances so to speak but I think it's clear that you know that it has led to at least at the national level um, more understanding that displacement exists and recognition that now this needs to be implemented which is a, is a good start. Uh, another sort of anecdotal evidence that I sort of was able to yeah just hear from people is that ever since the policy came into being it looks like some of the displacement situations or evictions or things like that that have happened have actually been better managed than before. But this is, of course, you know, word of mouth and you'll have to go in and do your proper sort of research to actually evaluate it. But I think that that was, it was interesting to sort of hear that feedback. But we're also, I think Vanuatu is also, is a good example of where we're doing this work, but also just maybe to share that we're also beginning to sort of engage with working with the Solomon Islands on their planned relocation uh, policies and uh, right now also finishing a policy program with the government of Tonga on migration in general and how it sort of contributes to sustainable development. But of course, even in Tonga, the question of sort of uh, disaster displacement and climate change related migration is coming about. So we're also looking at how we can already put in place some of the processes or cross-ministerial working groups to actually look into this question. Most of the human mobility that um, that's in focus in the national level strategies and plans is relates to 
internal displacement. People who listen to this podcast and think about the Pacific and think about rising sea levels and sinking states, this kind of vision of uh, Pacific and small island states facing inundation as a consequence of climate change, think about concepts like the contested term climate refugees. What do you see being based in the Pacific in terms of cross-border displacement uh, in the context of disasters and climate change? Is it a phenomenon or is it something that uh, people are anticipating will become an issue? Uh, what's, What's it look like for people moving across international borders in this context? It's a really important question to ask because there is, I mean, as you know, a gap in terms of how to protect people when they are moving across borders in the context of climate change disasters because they're not recognized as refugees. So what um, needs to be done? I'll give you, I mean, I'll say a few things on this. So the first is maybe just, you know, even though I just said there's nothing such as climate refugees, there have been cases of people within the region that have tried uh, in the countries of Australia and New Zealand to appeal to the courts and um, have actually tried to apply for asylum, uh, to seek asylum um, on on grounds of the fact that they are being affected deeply by climate change. So you had the famous case of um, of the man from Kiribati, and he actually his his plea was actually rejected, um, and he returned back to Kiribati because on grounds of the fact that. You know, you can't be a refugee because you cannot be persecuted (coughs) by environmental factors. And then you have another case of a family from Tuvalu or Kiribati. I'm forgetting which one. Tuvalu. AC Tuvalu from New Zealand. Yeah, from Tuvalu to New Zealand. And they were accepted under the humanitarian category of visas. Is that correct? Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, you obviously have looked into this more than I have, but um, yeah, so they were accepted and then everyone sort of looked at them and said, wow, we've got climate refugees, is this the beginning of, of a new trend? And of course, I think it was soon after that that you also had news of a potential climate visa category or something like that coming out of New Zealand. But I think that the statement, if you look at it carefully, said that you know, there were several other reasons as to why they should be considered under the humanitarian category. These are climate change was one of those reasons. So there have been in recent times, and there's also, of course, a lot of new cases of islanders actually appealing to the ICJ on grounds of the fact that they are being sort of affected by climate change. So they're looking at these sort of legal recourses, uh, you know, climate justice. But... In general, I mean, climate refugees as a term doesn't exist, but there are people that are moving across borders, and that movement across borders could potentially also be driven by climate change. I think the other thing here is this discussion of sort of, you know, whether this movement across borders is displacement or migration, because um, at least in, in terms of the few cases that I've given you are, are a lot of the people that have to move across borders because the Pacific, you know, is, is consisting of mainly 
islands and there are very few contigu- contiguous land borders apart from in PNG. You don't you need a significant amount of resources to go from one country to another. And what that means is that if you are in a situation of being displaced and you don't have you may not have those resources. So it's not as easy to be moving across borders in the Pacific region and you need to be in that category where you have uh, sufficient sort of resources to go. And what that basically means is that either you yeah, that, that I think the element of choice then is something that needs to sort of be explored and understood. So um, the, the whole question of, but <laughs> I guess the, the question here is really that um, if you're, lo- so the, the whole theory, okay, the whole idea is that you if you are living in an atoll country, say, for example, Tuvalu, uh, and you are located there, and you, you know, looking at your IPCC projections, the rising sea levels will be, you know, in the worst case, one meter by the end of the century, which means that you will potentially have to leave if you li- live particularly in a low lying area, given that the average elevation is maybe 1.8 meters. So the risk here is that you will have to kind of move to another country and you will then be displaced. I think what this sort of doomsday scenario uh, excludes is the fact that the way that climate change will actually affect these atolls is not just, it won't just be the last or the worst case of inundation that will make people move. I mean, long before that, there will be saltwater intrusion, there will be coastal erosion, which means that the place will not be habitable because you won't be able to grow your crops, you won't be able to continue your fishing, and your livelihoods will be destroyed. So people will be needing to move to other places long before, which means that they might actually choose voluntarily or preemptively, and the degree of voluntariness is something that can be debated, but preemptively make the choice to go to another place. And I think that that's why this whole debate of migration and displacement becomes very important. And during uh, and in the course of our program, that's why we also look at sort of these voluntary pathways, such as labor migration pathways, because there could be many people that then choose to move through permanent residence or sort of seasonal worker schemes to the other countries. And I think that that's something that is probably going to be a trend that you will see more coming out of the region rather than the issue of sort of cross-border displacement. So I'm not saying that that's not something that's important because there definitely needs to be the protection in place for those people that do not choose to migrate. But I'm also trying to sort of emphasize that there could be many that will make that individual decision to move. And that's why you have countries such as Tuvalu at the UN General Assembly tabling uh, resolutions to actually protect the rights of people that could be potentially displaced in the context of climate change. So I think, yeah, I don't know if I answered exactly your question of whether the cross-border movement is a phenomenon or not, but I think just in summary to say that I think now you don't really see people being displaced in the context of climate change. Much of that movement is for greener pastures, better education, um, health, uh, permanent residence, opportunities. Um, It could be potentially in the future where you will have to you know, relocate entire countries, but it's unlikely that I think in realistic terms that we'll ever get there. But if it does, there needs to be appropriate protection mechanisms in place. 
thanks for the comprehensive answer. I, I'm giving in to the um, temptation to make a shameless plug for my own book that's coming out next year, uh, which is on climate change, disasters, and the Refugee Convention, which takes uh, up the question about when a person can be persecuted in the context of disasters and climate change, and looks in detail at those uh, New Zealand cases that Sabira was mentioning. Enough about me. Um, the, the point that you were making uh, just towards the end there about different pathways, labor migration, people moving for greener pastures, gives us an opportunity to segue into another question about uh, how the international community is now starting to concretely engage with this issue of cross-border mobility, which, which we were just discussing. And most notably, of course, we have in the lead-up to this uh, the Nansen Initiative and the process of consulting on effective practices uh, as opposed to binding international legal obligations for dealing with this protection gap that you mentioned. But what came out of that, in addition to the protection agenda, which is the, the main product of the Nansen Initiative, is this global compact on safe, orderly, and regular migration, which was adopted by the General Assembly in, uh, at the end of 2018, which includes a specific section on displacement uh, or on human mobility in the context of disasters and climate change. It provides encouragement to states to take on these effective practices, uh, try to find good pathways, safe, legal, orderly pathways for mobility, recognizing that uh, migration can be an effective adaptation strategy. Do you think this is an effective way for the international community to be dealing with uh, this issue of human mobility in the context of disasters and climate change. How do you, how do you see the GCM in this context? Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really excited to hear about your book. This is another shameless <laughs> way of going back to your, your plug, but um, yeah, I'm glad I asked you to clarify because I've been talking about those cases and I didn't realize I was sitting before someone who's a vet, you know, huge expert in this. He must have explored this a lot more than, than I have, so looking forward to reading it. Um, I think on your question, if I can also gently beg to differ a little bit, I wouldn't say that the global compact uh, on safe, orderly, and regular migration was something that came out of the Nansen Initiative. Um, I mean, there's been a a lot of work that's happened in terms of global policy and migration for many uh, years. I mean, you had the first high-level dialogue on migration development in 2006, and there's been sort of conscious attempts throughout to be bringing about a global agenda or a global policy framework on migration. The, the high-level dialogue is obviously key, but then you also have the global f uh, framework for migration development discussions that have been and annually or biannually, I'm not sure. But um, I think there's been a lot of work that's been happening on, on global at the global level in terms of bringing about some type of consensus on migration, but it's obviously one which is extremely polarized in terms of the discussions that are ongoing, but it's excellent to finally see uh, something such as the Global Compact uh, for Safe Orderly and Regular Migration coming out 
um, and um, being, you know, signed and adopted, signed by many by many states, even though it's not a legally binding document by any means. And of course, I mean, I think that that said, I don't want to, I mean, the work that the Manson Initiative did and the protection agenda was extremely important to also feed into that discussion under the second objective on the minimizing the, the adverse drivers of climate change and structural factors that compel people to leave their area of origin. So the protection agenda was an extremely important sort of input into that second objective to help um, also acknowledge that when we're talking of migration as a global policy agenda, it also needs to be talking about the movement of people that is driven by disasters and climate change. Um, now just, yeah, your question in terms of what next or is this an effective way to deal with the issue? I think um, one of the things that we've always seen from the perspective of people that are trying to look at disaster displacement or climate migration, I, I've come from actually more of a climate change world and sort of looking at how migration fits in there. And I think that in some senses the global policy on climate change has been a lot more advanced on the topic of climate change and migration. I mean, I mentioned before the, the Cancun uh, adaptation framework that was actually uh, agreed on in 2010. And then you have, of course, the Sendai Framework in 2015, the Paris Agreement, that recognizes this link. And in some senses, the GCM was also playing catch up and acknowledging that climate change fit into this argument on migration. Um, but other policy agendas had already recognized this link. So it is definitely an effective way to deal with this issue, but it's also one that kind of links to the other policy agendas that already recognize this. So it is bringing synergies across the different sort of uh, different discourses that are sort of ongoing. In terms of the what next or do, you know, do we need something else? I think the, the real point now is that you know, the GCM is a huge document. Are there 23 objectives? 20, 22 objectives? I don't know. <laughs> I think there are 23 objectives. And the question really is, how do we implement this? And I think that that should be the focus right now as opposed to thinking of what the other global policy processes or how do we need to strengthen that. I think there will be the evaluation or the, or the review of the GCN that is going to happen in a few years anyway. So I think the, the focus should be now on implementation and specifically sort of pulling it down to regional and national levels. And that's where we really need to see working with, of course, governments, but also, um, you know, whole, it, 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 it sort of enshrines a whole of society approach, so also working with civil society actors um, and other non-governmental actors to try and see how we can implement this. So I think that that's where the focus needs to be, and this is also probably the most effective way in terms of dealing with um, climate change and migration or disasters displacement or whatever you want to call it and I think that comes back to the conversation that we had this morning that it sort of started talking about how as you had said the state is the duty bearer for human rights and to ensure that human rights is mainstreamed into addressing disaster displacement but in our conversation we focused so much on the other actors you know the, the church groups the chiefs um, the traditional governance structures that exist, national level, different ministries, local level. So basically, 
I think what we really need to do is now pulling in everyone together, having that whole of society approach and trying to figure out what is everyone's role and responsibility in implementing this GCM and specifically uh, also looking at disaster displacement and understanding the roles and responsibility and also trying to coordinate across that. So these structures need to be put in place and then we need to identify and prioritize from that big document what is it that we need to really implement. Um, and then even under the second objective, figuring out what are the first steps that we need to do. So the, the stuff that I think, I mean, the, the projects that we have ongoing right now here in the region sort of do that to an extent. So I think we sort of recognize that in order to have proper policies or even implementation, you need to have the evidence and research. So that's why right now in, in Ion Fiji, we're starting and looking at how we can support that evidence and research and collecting and having a consolidated evidence base on disaster displacement that exists. And then my program also focuses on policy. And then we do also um, look at sort of the capacity building element. So these are the three main elements that sort of start that one next conversation. Yeah. International, regional, National, subnational, Sabira Coelho from International Organization for Migration Fiji Office has taken us through all of it. Thank you so much for sharing your insights and experience with us on our, our visit here. Um, and again, for your kind hospitality for hosting our consultation here in Suva. Thanks again. Thank you. That was Sabira Coelho, Program Manager for International Organization for Migration in Fiji, on the topic of displacement and climate change. This has been All Human Rights. For more information and the latest updates on Raoul Wallenberg Institute's work, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn and Twitter. Thank you for listening.